All right, well, let's pray and we'll jump back into Acts 18. Lord, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the, the truth that it holds, for the impact that it has on our lives. We pray that you would help us to just meditate on it tonight and that we would have a greater understanding of what went on in the early church and what it is that, that you led Paul to do and Apollos and these other people that we're going to be looking at help us to remember they are real people, not just Bible characters. These are Bible stories. This is biblical history. Um, and you've preserved it for us, which is so cool. And God, I thank you for the little ones. Pray that you'd be with them tonight um, and pray that you'd be honored in everything that we think, say, and do this evening. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so Acts chapter 18. Somebody remind us what we went over last week in the first 11 verses. In walks the full of Well, Paul, we'll have to around with that. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, so this took place in Corinth, right? So the first part of Acts 18, we see Paul as he is in Corinth. Um, and yeah, we find Aquila and Priscilla there. And Timothy and Silas, they stepped in for a little bit, and they brought some relief from up north in Macedonia. Um, anything else you guys remember from the first 11 verses? He shook out his clothes. He was done with the Jews. Yeah. Uh, I'm not having any of that, right? What did they? What was their response to to Paul, the Jews that were in the the synagogue? Well, that was back in uh, Athens at the end of chapter 17. So, what's that? Yeah, yeah. So he was in Athens before. So going back to 17, he was in Thessalonica, and they drove him out of Thessalonica. They didn't really like him in Thessalonica, so they persecuted him and he left. That was kind of a pattern that was set for Paul. He would show up to a town, he would preach in the synagogue, um, preach Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection, and people didn't like that because the cross is foolishness, those who are perishing, and they would drive him out. And so he left Thessalonica, and where did he go after that? Berea. Berea. And he commended the Bereans, right? Because they were more noble than the Thessalonians, or Thessalonians um, and they searched the scripture, but the Thessalonians followed him to Berea and drove him out of Berea as well. And then he went to Athens. And in Athens, um, they were all philosophical, right? They were high-minded, um, and, and they really liked their philosophy. And so he went to Mars Hill, or the, the Areopagus, this place that was devoted to the, the god of war, the Greek god of war, and he reasoned with them there. And as somebody said, uh, the response was mixed, right? Um, some mocked him, and others said, well, we want to hear a little bit more. This is kind of interesting. This is something new, right? They're always looking for something new, some new knowledge. Um, and then some actually believed. But then he went from um, from Athens and he went to Corinth. And it was in Corinth. We talked a little bit about the state of Paul's mind and how it's likely that he was 
getting down on himself um, after all this persecution being driven out of these cities, not really seeing the kind of response that he would hope for. And he had a vision that we talked about. Do you guys remember the vision we discussed? I think it's verse 9, 10-ish, somewhere in there. Yeah. So he got this affirmation from the Lord, right? Which kind of tells us that he had some kind of doubts or some kind of um, discouragement, right? So he kept coming up against this wall, facing this persecution, and he was kind of down, kind of discouraged. And God gave him this vision and said, you know what, don't stop preaching. Don't, don't shut up your mouth, even though these people are against you. He said, I'm not going to give them over to you, or I'm not going to give you over to them, rather. Um, in fact, I have many people in this city. Yeah, that is verse 10. Um, and then verse 11 says that he stuck around for a little bit. He was there for a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. So this vision um, must have given him some kind of encouragement, the strength to keep going, knowing that God was with him and he was behind the work that he was doing there in the city. Any other thoughts on 17 or first part of chapter 18 before we move on? All right. Um, Will somebody read for us verses 12 through 17 of chapter 18, please? Joseph, will you read 12 to 17, please? But while Galia was proconsul of... And the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime of Jews, O oh Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of... Sosthenes? Sosthenes? The leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Galio was not concerned about any of these All right. So that's our little story about Galio. Um, I did a little bit of research on Galio this week, and apparently he was a semi-famous dude. Um, His brother was really famous, Seneca. Any of you guys familiar with Seneca? Andy's familiar with Seneca. I have no idea who Seneca is, but apparently he was famous, and he's somebody that we should know. So um, Seneca. Um, He was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, and he was an author. That's about all I know about Seneca. You got anything else for us, Andy? All right. About covers it. About covers it. Um, But he was a well-to-do, well-known guy, Um, and he wrote a couple of books that he dedicated to Gallio. So people have known about Gallio for a while in secular history, but they didn't know that he was this pro-council of Achaia. I mean, we knew from biblical sources, and of course the Bible is inspired, it is God-breathed, and so we can take that to the bank. But the secular world would look at this and they would say, well, we have no idea. Um, that is 
undocumented. But in the 20th century, there was some discovery that was made that verified Luke's account. This is one of many places where Luke's writings have been often, often authenticated right, um, by secular sources. They come along and they say, okay, well, Luke wrote this thing, and, and we don't really believe it, but then they find something else that verifies the fact that Luke was on his game because he was being led by the Holy Spirit, of course. Um, and so this is one of those points in, in Scripture that is is verified, which is kind of cool, I guess. Um, Gallio, along with his so-called famous brother, who none of us have heard of, Seneca, were both um, murdered by Nero, along with Paul, um, later on in life, obviously. So they have that in common, which is kind of interesting, because they're sitting here interacting with each other right now, kind of on different sides of the bench. Paul's being brought before him, and Gallio is the one who has charge over his life, and yet they both ultimately fall at the hands of Nero um, years later, which is kind of interesting, just the way that their lives are intertwined. Was, wait, did Gallio become a Christian? Or? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, because he he put up a fight against what Nero was doing in, in the Roman Empire. He kind of uh, bit back a little bit, and so did his brother, Seneca. Yep. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, so that's Gallio. He was a pro-council of Achaia. Um, and we see that the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul, just like they had done before, right? So they did it in Thessalonica, followed them to Berea, we had a mixed audience in Athens, and now again, the Jews are rising up because they're realizing this is a different message. This isn't what, what we believe. He's coming, he's preaching that the Messiah has come. Um, and they are differentiating themselves from biblical Christianity and uh, getting to the point where they're rising up and coming before the pro-council, asking the pro-council to step in and to do something about Paul and the, the disturbance that he's causing in the city, which is fun for me to think about. That he's going into all these cities, and he's causing a ruckus, right? He's not just sitting back in the background, but he's, he's making a stir. And the response isn't always welcome. Um, they don't welcome, in, welcome him in and give him a parade or anything. Uh, but they bite back a little bit, and it shows us that Paul was pretty fierce in the, the veracity that he brought to a city whenever he came into a city. And so they would say in verse 13, This man, speaking about Paul, persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. A uh, couple of thoughts about what could be going on there. It's kind of vague in in that verse, how he's persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. But Roman law only persuaded certain sects to uh, to preach, certain religions to to be around. If you didn't have a, a religion that had a, a stamp of approval by the almighty Roman state, then it was illegal, right? Um, and so he could be saying that um, this, what would be considered a, a sect of Judaism wasn't really... Um, legalized by Roman law. And so, because he is of a, a different persuasion of Roman law, then you need to put a stop to him. And so again, they're making differentiation between 
um, Judaism and Christianity, or it could be referring to um, to Jewish law, because remember, these Jews were entrenched in all kinds of um, traditions of men. They had 613 commandments that they wanted to keep. Um, they had the, the different rabbinical laws that they had, um, circumcision. He's coming in. Remember chapter 15, they had the, the council of Jerusalem, and they said it's not necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised. They can be a part of this group without being circumcised. And so perhaps they're getting upset that he's not following the Jewish traditions. Um, it's, again, a little bit unclear what they mean when they're saying, well, he's, he's not wanting men to follow after the law. Um, but either way, they're seeking this pro-council's uh, aid in putting a stop to what Paul is teaching in the, the gospel, the true gospel that he is presenting to uh, the people here in Corinth. Um, again, where he's been for a year and a half up to this point. In verse 14... Paul was about to open his mouth. He's going to defend himself just like he's done in the past, just like he'll do in the future. Um, and look at chapters 24 and 26, I believe, before he, when he's before Festus and Agrippa and he's given his defense. Um, he was getting ready to do the same thing and say, well, actually, the Jewish scriptures teach about this Messiah, and the Messiah has come, and he is here, and his name is Jesus. But before he has a chance to actually open up his mouth and give a defense, Gallio opens up his mouth and it says in verse 14 that he said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, then you go look after it yourself. I am unwilling to be a judge in these matters. So he's pretty much stepping back and saying, I'm not, I'm not going to play your games. It's a, a semantics game. You guys say he's a Messiah. You say the Messiah's not come yet. And I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm just going to throw in the towel and I'm going to let you guys have at him. Um, which might seem somewhat honorable. I don't know. What? Explain again what a pro-counsel is. <laughs> um, like a leader of the a leader? Yeah, he's a leader. Um... <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a, a better answer than that. He's a, a civil leader. Okay. So kind of like a, a judge. Um, they're looking for somebody to, to come forward and settle this matter for them. And he said, well, it's not a, a legal issue. He said, if it were a, a matter of a, a legal issue, then it'd be reasonable for me to put up with you if it were some kind of crime or a matter of wrongdoing. But it's not. It's just... Again, religious semantics, and so he's going to let them deal with it. All right. Um, it says, after this, he drove them out away from the judgment seat. So you kind of see there the, the role that he had. Um, he was the one who was sitting in the judgment seat waiting to um, judge over wrongdoing and vicious crime. So... I would say just similar to to a judge we would have in in our modern day be a pro counsel, but yeah, I don't have a better answer than that. Sorry. Um, verse seventeen, 
says that they, um, the Jews, took a hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio, the same guy, was not concerned about any of these things either. Now, yeah, you would think so, right? That he said, well, if it was wrongdoing or a vicious crime, then yeah, I'd step in and, and govern it. Um, and that's blatantly a, a vicious crime, and he didn't have anything to do with it. So he's pretty apathetic, right? He's just wanting to sit back, not get involved, and not be uh, contrary. He, Um, well, if he wanted to be on the good side of the Jews, then he would have gotten rid of Paul. So in the first case, they brought Paul before him. It was the Jews who brought him and said, we'll get rid of this guy. And he said, no, I don't want to appease you Jews. And then the Jews went after Sosthenes. And again, he said, well, you do whatever you want. So it's not a matter of appeasing the Jews or not. He's, uh, he just seems apathetic to me. And like, we don't know why Sosthenes was there or anything? Well... What do you guys think? Why was Sosthenes there? To argue the side of the Jews, right? Uh, it, yeah, he was a, a leader of the synagogue, um, but it doesn't say why he was there, well, like which side he was arguing. Uh, presumably, if he was arguing for the, for the Jews, then I don't see why the Jews would, would come up against him, unless maybe he wasn't doing an adequate job in there. Mind and so he didn't step up to to Gallio in an adequate way. I'm not sure. It doesn't give us specifics as to why they went after Sosthenes, but they did. Yeah, it's possible. Um, and this is the second time in just a, a handful of verses that we see this phrase, "the leader of the synagogue," used. Do you guys remember talking about that last week? Look up a little bit in in your text. Um, yeah, in verse eight, Crispus was the leader of the synagogue, and remember that um, when Paul had left the the synagogue before, he got kicked out of the synagogue, or like you said, he kind of uh, brushed off his clothes and he said, "I'm I'm not going to be doing this," and he went all the way next door to the house of Titus Justice. And so obviously Titus Justice was, it says in verse 7, a worshiper of God. He lived next door to the synagogue. And then verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household and many of the Corinthians who, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so Crispus, the former leader of the synagogue, converted and he put his faith in Christ. And so it would seem like this this other leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes, was his replacement. Um, he stepped in and kind of took over after Crispus um, left, and he embraced Christ. And so this guy, Sosthenes, was beaten. Jesus came and said, or I don't know, it doesn't say that the vision was from Christ back in 9 and 10, does it? Oh, yeah, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid any longer, uh, don't be silent, but I'm going to be with you, and they're not going to hurt you in this city. However, he didn't make that that promise to Sosthenes, and so they went after Sosthenes instead. 
for whatever reason, they were prevented from doing so against Paul, even though Paul was the, the true source of their frustration. Um, again, we, we don't know why, but they ended up going after Sosthenes. And um, was it you, Sandra, who said that we see him back over in 1 Corinthians? Um, Jeremy preached on this a couple months ago now. But in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, we see this guy come up again. So it says, 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. And so he he came to the Lord. So two, um, two leaders of the synagogue in a row have come to Christ. Crispus first in verse 8 and then Sosthenes both come to the Lord, which is pretty cool stuff. Yes, Joe? seems to me that um, Galileo didn't want to take sides because he might have been beaten by one side or the other. And Socrates must have taken sides. And so the other side beat him. Yeah. And so that's a, an interesting thought. Was it at this point that he came to Christ and maybe that's why he was beaten? Um, we don't know. I mean, we can speculate, but... Um, what we do know is that Gallio didn't end up taking sides. Sosthenes was beaten, whether before or after, he ended up coming to the Lord, which is pretty neat. Um, makes me wonder if we could see something like that in, in our city. If we could see like a local bishop come to the Lord out of a, a Mormon ward, be replaced, see that local bishop come to the Lord. Mm. That'd be pretty cool. Um, you just think and imagine the impact that that would have, um, especially on a, a smaller scale. They didn't have a kind of population that, that we're working with today, so that would definitely have a, an impact. Yes? What would we do if somebody came into our church and started preaching against God? Oh, we would put a stop to that. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. Yep. And he was given that commission. That was his job. That was his responsibility to go and to share Christ with others. And like we said, he did get kicked out of synagogues, but that's okay. Um, that's what people are going to do because they don't want to hear about the message of the cross. They don't want to hear that they're sinful and accountable to a holy, righteous God. So we should expect that, but that shouldn't stop us from, from going out and fulfilling our mandate to do so. Any other thoughts? All right. Um, let's see. Yeah, so that took us through 17. Um, Sosthenes ends up coming to the Lord, just as Christmas did. Um, will somebody read verses 18 through 21, please? Alright, 
Um, so we see he stuck around for a little while longer. He was already there for a year and a half. He had this interaction with Gallio, and it said he stayed there for, for many days longer, so maybe pushing a couple years that he was there in, in Corinth. But then he took off. And who did he take with him in verse 18? He took Priscilla and Aquila, the only other leaders, really, that we see there in Corinth, which tells us um, that he likely left somebody else there. We don't see what happened to Silas and Timothy back in verse 5, but it's not likely that they stuck around in Corinth that whole time with Paul. Um, Perhaps he had trained up Titus Justice from verse 7 or Crispus from verse 8 and established elders in that church. That was the model that he set out for for Timothy later on to go in and to establish elders in each church so that they can be self-governing and they can take care of themselves. Paul can't stay everywhere for an indefinite amount of time. He was moving along. He was planning these different churches and establishing leaders as he went. So uh, no doubt he did that before taking Aquila and Priscilla and getting out of there. At the end of verse 18, um, we have a kind of weird little phrase, right? It says, in Centria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And that's all we read there about Centria. But we know that he planted a church there, too, in Centria. You jump forward to Romans 16, and you read about Phoebe, um, the sole deaconess that we read about in the Bible. And she was from Centria, from the church at Centria. So um, we know there was a church established there, and no doubt many great things happened there, but the Holy Spirit tells us that he got a haircut while he was in Centria. So that's That's a great clip. It doesn't tell us specifically what the vow was, but it's likely that it was a a Nazarite vow. You can read about it back in Numbers chapter 6. Actually, let's turn there. Let's turn to number six, and we'll look at that a little bit. Who had this vow? Paul. Yep. Um, It was uh, a common Jewish thing to take a a Nazarite vow, which was to abstain from alcohol and uh, touching dead bodies, and there was something else. Oh, cutting your hair, duh. The the one thing that's pertinent to this passage, right? So they wouldn't drink. Um, they would stay away from dead bodies, including um, it even mentioned specifically in this chapter. Like if you had a, a parent or a sibling or something pass away, um, you didn't go to a viewing or a funeral or anything if you were under this vow to the Lord and you didn't let a razor touch your head. So that was what this Nazarite vow was, and it was done in, out of response of gratitude to the Lord that he had uh, delivered you from something or he had um, shown up in, in some way, which is kind of interesting on the feet of, or on the hills of him being in, in Corinth and having this prolonged stay in Corinth, um, being revitalized and rejuvenated by this vision from the Lord, um, and not having anybody threaten his his ministry by persecution as they had done in, in previous cities. Um, so let's look in Numbers 6, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. 
And while I do that, just listen to the the tedious requirements of the law and the sacrifices that are involved in in this vow. Numbers 6, 13 through 18. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering. So three different animals for three different offerings. And a basket of unleavened cake and fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil along with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. Then the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall also offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord together with the basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its offering and its drink offering. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. Does that sound like fun? That's a lot of offering, right? A lot of ritual, a lot of following the rules. Doesn't that make you thankful for Jesus, who is our perfect sacrifice, who offered himself once and all, once for all, the just for the unjust? Um, I can't imagine. I mean, that was very tedious. Um, and all these different offerings, different aspects of these offerings, um, it's crazy. And notice at the end there, it said that he was to do what with, with his hair? The Nazarite was. Yeah. To take it and to burn it, right? Yeah. I don't know why we all know what burnt hair smells like, but for some reason we do. I can't like pinpoint a time in my life where I burned my hair and I know that smell, but I definitely know that smell. So. Yes. But I didn't burn it off, Joe. I took a razor to my head. I have not taking a Nazarite vow. So. It makes me curious why Paul takes that kind of vow. Yeah, it's different, right? Because this is post-Christ. Um, and he was a Pharisee before, and so it would make sense for him to do it before, but why after Christ is he taking this vow? Andy? There's another place where Paul is returning to Jerusalem, right? Yeah. In the chapter 21, I think. Him and, him and his friend, right? The, his friend is Greek, right? Uh, it was a few friends. They're going to do the vow. They're going to do the vow. And then some, right. And they go to... Yeah, and so in, in that case, it's possible that he may be doing it for... Um, Moral support, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. But here, he's the only one who's doing it, right? And again, it's post-Christ. He, he's already been um, changed on the road to Damascus. And so we have to remember Acts is a transitional book, right? Um, it's not a book about doctrine and theology, though we can take that out of it. But it's not giving us a, a blueprint for go out and do this. And so they're they're working through all this. Remember, they just barely settled the fact that they don't need to be circumcised. They're still trying to figure out 
um, still going into the synagogues and still meeting at the regular times for synagogue and for prayer. Um, so they're they're transitioning out of this. And even the Jews themselves, as we already saw, they're coming before and they're realizing, coming to Galileo and saying, hey, they're, they're different. They're not a sect of Judaism. This is a completely different religion. But Galileo said, no, this is your matter. Um, he's not yet making that distinction. So there's lots of transitions going on, lots of still holding on to the old. Um, and Paul was a, a Pharisee his whole life, right? He was a Jew his whole life. And he had only come to Christ recently, in recent years. And so um, seems like he's still holding on to some of those traditions, some of that stuff from his past. Not that it's necessarily bad. He's just trying to figure it all out and work through it. He was a human, just like we are. And so he's, he's working along just like everybody else. Remember, Peter had a much more difficult time. He refused to eat with Gentiles. Um, back in chapter 10, he had the sheet come down, and God had to tell him three times, Peter, take and eat. <laughs> and he had the audacity to say no to God. I'm, I'm not going to do that, right? Uh, granted, it was in a vision, but he did that even to the Lord himself, the incarnate Christ. Um, and Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. But um, that's Peter for you, I guess. But it, I think it's natural for us to expect Paul to have the same kind of challenges and figuring out what do I do with, with all this tradition, with the way that I've, I'm used to, to operating as a Jew. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Yeah, I know it's not crystal clear, but Acts isn't going to be crystal clear because, again, it's transitional. Um, and we'll continue to see that throughout the book of Acts. That it's kind of back and forth a little bit. Paul had some serious dedication of himself to God for that doing that. Because it was a special vow, basically. Yeah. And because of all the things that they had to go through and had to do and offerings, etc. Um, yeah, it was definitely an interruption in his life. Yeah, they would do it for 30, 60, or 100 days, this vow. Um, there were a few people who did it lifetime. Who's our, our lifetime Nazarite that we know about in the Bible? Samson. <coughs> What's that? Samson. Oh. Samson yeah, Samson was a lifelong Nazarite, right? Samson. You knew. <laughs> yeah, Samson was, and so was Samuel. Yeah? And then who else? you know the, the third one? A New Testament Nazarite. John the Baptist, yeah. All of his life, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Weird guy, right? Uh, ate honey and locusts and wore camel's hair. Yeah, different fellow. So, uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he could still take a bath even though he couldn't shave his head, huh? So, Samuel, Samson, and John the Baptist. But this was not a lifelong vow. You're right. It was 30, 60, or 100 days. We, we don't know which. 
All right, so that's just a, a footnote at the end of verse 18. That's the only thing we're told that took place in, in Centria. Uh, verse 19 says that they, again, talking Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, they came to Ephesus, and he, Paul, left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. So he shows up in Ephesus, this other major city, and he drops off his two good friends he's been spending the last couple years with. Remember, they're both tent makers. Well, all three of them are tent makers. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they are... um, they are great co-workers for, for Paul. Um, we'll see later that they are adequate in being able to teach the word. And rather than taking them with him, he leaves them, which, again, is the pattern of Paul. We talked about that a little bit last week. He does it with, with Timothy, with um, with everybody, really, he comes in contact. He's just moving chess pieces around the board. He's kingdom-minded. He's not focused on him and his own comforts, but he sees these people, they need a shepherd. They need a leader. These people, they need Jesus. They need somebody to come alongside and, and disciple them. And he leaves his his two greatest companions at this point in Ephesus, uh, putting his own needs aside and realizing that that church has a greater need. Now in verse 20, it says that they asked him to stay. He went and he reasoned in the synagogue, just like he always does. And they said, man, this is this is something different. We want to hear. Now, again, all through Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, they didn't really show this kind of interest. They didn't want to hear. But here in Ephesus, they want to hear. And he says, nope, I got a dip. Thoughts on why that might be? Because he's got a dip. Because he's got a dip? But why? Why, in light of Numbers chapter 6, would he not stick around in Ephesus when they're asking him? Yeah. He's got a pocket full of his hair from Centria, right? He's got to get to Jerusalem and burn and offer sacrifices with. Yeah. Weird, I know. It's all a picture of Christ, right? It's all fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. But um, he has this vow that he wants to fulfill and complete. And so rather than stick around in Ephesus, which would have been uh, no doubt a a call that would be hard for him to reject, he is the, the greatest missionary ever, right? That is his lifeblood, is to share Christ. And these people are saying, stick around, tell us about Jesus. And it's not like Jerusalem is the next town over. Nah, Jerusalem. He's got to hop on a ship and go. He's got a long haul to get back to Jerusalem. Yeah. And so it's obviously important for him. And again, we're we're kind of reading between the lines here, but I think it makes sense. He's Because that's where it goes next. He ends up in Jerusalem. And to fulfill this vow, um, he's got to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and burn his hair. So that... (laughs) gives us good explanation as to why this uh, evangelistic missionary doesn't stick around when they ask him to hang out with them in Ephesus for a little while. So verse 21 says, after he said no, he said, but taking his leave of them and saying, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail to Ephesus. And we'll see next week that he in fact does return to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Verses 22 and 23. 
when he had landed at Caesarea, this is a different place than where he burned his hair or cut his hair. So that was Centria, or at least that's how I've been pronouncing it. But Caesarea um, is this different place where he landed. He went up and he greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So now he's back in um, the the Israel region where Jesus walked and roamed and what we're used to um, down in Caesarea. Yeah. Okay. Well, Caesarea Philippi is up nor- north, a little bit farther. Caesarea is down on the coast, so it's a little bit bigger. It's um, a coastal city, um, but it's close to to Jerusalem. And so when it says that he went up and greeted the church, he's talking about Jerusalem. Whenever the Bible says that they went up, it's not talking about north. It's talking about altitude. So he went up in altitude to Jerusalem, which is apparently up on a hill. I've never been there, maybe someday, but um, I've heard that you can tell that you're going up to Jerusalem because it's quite a climb. Um, so he went up there. That's likely where he offered his sacrifice, burned his hair, fulfilled his vow. Um, no doubt said hi to some people he knew up there. And then he went down to Antioch. And Antioch is actually north of Jerusalem. But again, you're going down the, the mountain to Antioch. Um, and he had some connections in Antioch too. Remember that he and Barnabas were sent out from the Antioch, the church at Antioch. Um, and so he's kind of going back to home base now. He's back in his old stomping grounds of Jerusalem and Antioch, saying hi to everybody, kind of regrouping a little bit. So this is the official end of his second missionary journey. He went and he made his rounds, saw all the churches that he saw on his first missionary journey, went back and discipled them. He Remember, he's not going to new places. He's going back and he's building into these relationships that he's already made. He's discipling these young believers um, and obviously um, reaching out to new converts along the way. But he wants to encourage these churches that he's already established. Numbers 23 says, having spent some time there in Antioch, again, home base, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so this is where he starts his third missionary journey. Um, And he goes back to the very same places he went on his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey. He heads up north um, and goes back to these churches. And it's talking about the, the greater area of the region, kind of the... Um, the the county to city comparison. So Galatian, Phrygia are county type regions that he was going to strengthening these churches. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. Now Apollos, we've not heard of in in acts but we've been talking a little bit about in corinthians right what do we know about apollos from our study in corinthians converted a great many mm-hmm. enough to, enough to, some would say it belonged to his yeah yeah he had a uh, an effective ministry in Corinth. And we'll get into that and we'll see that shortly, but um, he was very effective and um, caused a, a sort of division, not because he caused it, I don't want to say that, but um, he was persuasive. He had a, a pool about him. 
it says here in 24 that he was an eloquent man and he was mighty in the scriptures. And this is before he knew of the death and, and burial and resurrection of Christ. This is before he had the indwelling Holy Spirit, and yet he was eloquent, and he was mighty in scriptures. He was from Alexandria. <laughs> Alexandria was a city in Egypt, in northern Africa, and they were kind of like the Athenians. They were all about uh, philosophy and knowledge. They had one of the biggest libraries in the world, and um, they were constantly seeking after knowledge and it showed in Apollos and how he carried himself and presented himself. Verse 25 says, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And so he again, didn't know the, the latter part of Jesus' life, he was acquainted with Jesus, and he taught correctly the things about Jesus, but he only knew up to John the Baptist. Um, nothing beyond that. Verse 26, And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Um, two important words we see in, in that verse, that he was speaking out boldly, and they explained to him the word of God more accurately. Those are two great traits, great qualities to to go along with each other, to be bold and to be accurate. To have one without the other is kind of sad. Um, if you're bold and not accurate, then you're leading somebody astray. You're making somebody twice the son of Satan, twice the son of hell as, as yourself. Surely we know plenty of people who are bold and inaccurate. Um, likewise, if you're accurate, but you're not bold, then who's going to hear your message, right? Romans 10, how will they know without a preacher? Um, but Apollos, he was bold, and he, in what he was teaching about Christ, he was accurate. But who came alongside and taught him more accurately? Priscilla and Aquila. Um, and there we see the, the name switched. We talked about earlier how Aquila, last week, how Aquila was mentioned first and then Priscilla, but that's not the standard way that we see them in scripture. Priscilla, the wife, um, most often is mentioned first. And so Priscilla and Aquila took him along and taught him the word of God more accurately. Some people point to this verse and say, well, see, we can't have women preachers, but she's not preaching in a church setting in a synagogue behind a pulpit. She's ministering the word of God alongside of her husband, which is good it's commendable um to for women to to teach and to evangelize but not in a formal setting exercising authority over man which is what people will try to make this verse say and it absolutely doesn't um verse 27 then when he wanted to go across to achaia the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him Again, that's Apollos. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. A uh, couple things there. We see that his refutation was powerful. It was public. Um, and it was from the scriptures, um, focusing on Jesus as a Christ. And so he would take and he would show the Jews from their Old Testament scriptures this Messiah 
who you were waiting for, who you're looking for. He is here. His name is Jesus. And he taught him powerfully that same zeal and passion and ability to um, correctly divide the scripture as an eloquent man, a man who is uh, speaking and teaching accurately that carries on after he's shown Christ more fully. And I think it's after Aquila and Priscilla talk to him that he actually comes to faith in Christ. And after this, and we'll see next week, the beginning of chapter 19, other people who kind of fit the same bill, they were uh, of John the Baptist, right? They followed after John the Baptist, but it wasn't until after they heard about Christ that they received the Holy Spirit. And so Apollos continued to bring his natural gifts um, now empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a great impact on the church and um, help those who had believed through grace. Remember in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that he didn't come to the Corinthians with any eloquence of speech. Um, and in 2 Corinthians, um, let me read it real quick, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 um, he mentions the Corinthians and their understanding of Paul and his ability to speak. Uh, it says, For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. So Paul wasn't a great speaker. Um, you wouldn't think so by reading his letters, right? He can write like no other. But the Corinthians said, well, in person, you're, you're not that impressive, Paul, and your speech is kind of contemptible. But Apollos, he spoke mightily, right? He had a, a great preacher's voice, a great effect amongst the people, and um, he brought that to the church, and the church was more blessed for it. Um, Where did you just read from? That was 2 Corinthians 10. And if you give me another second, I can look back there and tell you the verse. Any thoughts or questions on Acts 18? Do we know what happens to Paul's name? We'll get into it a little bit in 19. He ends up in Corinth. Um, I don't know. At the end of... 1 Corinthians, I think 1 Corinthians 16. Um, yeah, so 1 Corinthians 16. Oh, sorry, Joseph, that verse was 10. So 2 Corinthians 10.10 10 was what I read about Paul's speech being contemptible. But 1 Corinthians 16.12 says, But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you, Corinthians, with the brethren, but it was not at, his, at all his desire to come now but he will come when he has opportunity. And so, as Travis mentioned, he was kind of the cause for division there. Not the cause, but uh, people were dividing because of him, which, again, just speaks to his ability to, to really speak and to draw a crowd. He was being mentioned with Cephas and Paul, these apostles. Um, some are saying, I'm a Paul. Some are saying, I'm of, a C of Cephas. And some are saying, I'm of Apollos. This guy who is an apostle, who's uh, a relatively new convert. So he was persuasive in his ability to, to teach and to disciple these, these people. But he had, he seems like he was so soft and 
he was willing to listen to Priscilla and Aquila. Um, they they came and they said that that message you just preached was great, but let me let me add to that. Let me tell you, preacher, that you're missing out on this Jesus and and what happened later. He actually is God in the flesh, and he died for us, and he rose again. And they explained to him the scriptures more accurately. And he sat there and he took it and he listened. So he was soft and, and humble. And then here in the end of 1 Corinthians 16, it says that he didn't want in any way to, to go back to Corinth. Not that he doesn't love the Corinthian church, but I think that he realized that they were looking at him and they were saying, I'm of Apollos, rather than um, being united under the headship of Christ. All right. Well, next week we will look at uh, Apollos' ministry in Corinth a little bit and um, in Ephesus. And remember, um, back in 23 was kind of the official start of Paul's third missionary journey. So he's going to go back and continue to strengthen and disciple these churches he's been uh, building these relationships with over the years. And we'll look at that a little bit in Acts 19. God, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for these men um, and women that we can learn from in this passage. I pray that we would be like Apollos and that we are willing to accept correction. We are willing to be taught and discipled and learn from others. I pray that we would be like Priscilla and Aquila and that we're willing to to take others and to, to teach them and um, to tell them, Maybe they don't have it all together. As awkward as that could be sometimes, God, I pray that you would embolden us, um, that we would be bold and we would be correct in our understanding. God, I thank you for the early church. I thank you that we don't have to offer all kinds of sacrifices as uh, those Nazarites did, but that you are our one true sacrifice, that the blood of goats and bulls doesn't cover our sins, but the blood of the Holy Lamb of God is what we put our faith and our hope in. And I pray for, for those who don't know you in a saving way. God, I do pray for the, the bishops in the the Mormon churches around us, the wards around us, that you would draw them to yourself and their replacements to yourself, and that you would use us to to make an impact in this community, in this state, and uh, in our families, in our own spheres of influence. God, help us to be willing and to be used of you. We pray this in your name. Amen.